Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. So uh, this is Acts chapter 11, and it's, uh, it's an honor to be able to read God's Word. It's eternally true. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and everything was drawn back into the, up into the sky And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the words of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, They quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews only. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus. And at the hand of the Lord, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there were that there would certainly be a great famine over the world. And this took place 
in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. This is the word of the Lord. Well, from verse 1, it appears that news of Peter, what he had been involved in at Cornelius' house, had spread far and wide or fast throughout Judea and even got back to Jerusalem before him, just as news tends to spread among God's people fast. And by the time Peter and his six witnesses arrived back in Jerusalem, some of the brothers clearly had heard about it, had thoughts about it, had been stewing on this, and were very troubled by what it meant. Luke refers to this group in verse 2 as those who were circumcised. So realize that the whole church up to this time is Jewish, except for Cornelius and maybe the Ethiopian eunuch. So there's, it, it's overwhelmingly Jewish, which means it's overwhelmingly circumcised. Does this mean that the whole church is against Peter. It says those who were circumcised took him to task or took issue with him. Well, a better translation is those of the circumcision. And this is an early indication of a party or a sect or a group in the church uh, immediately emerging over this question of Gentiles and their inclusion in the church. And this is the first evidence of that spirit and, and viewpoint of disgruntledness or unhappiness over these questions. Um, that emerges in the church, and we see Peter dealing with it here very gently, charitably, patiently. It'll have to be, it'll come up again though, and it'll have to be addressed at a, at a church council. The first, they'll bring in all the big guns to Jerusalem, and they'll, they'll have to decide on these matters and give some instructions to the churches about how we're going to administrate these things and these relationships between Jew and Gentile, what it means, what it doesn't mean what's going to be required of Gentiles and what's not going to be required of Gentiles. They're going to work that out in chapter 15. But that's not going to solve it. Even after that, there's going to be this party in the church called the circumcision or the party of the circumcision. We're referring to um, not all of the church, but some parts of the church. And it's probably Palestinian Jews, not the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews are more Greek in orientation and experience. They've grown up, many, most of them, out in Greek-speaking lands and have rubbed shoulders with Greek people before, and they're, they're probably more broad-minded. And the people in Palestine who are, have lived their whole lives, not traveled as much, and have been very associated with their whole orientation to the temple and the, the procedures and requirements of the worship of the temple— they find these events and the significance of these events and changes that the Holy Spirit's bringing about much more difficult to accept and understand. So this is referring to a party in the church that emerges at this time. What do they take Peter to task over? This is very interesting. It's not his preaching to the Gentiles. It's not his baptizing them into membership in the church. It's simply this in verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Well, I was stressing last week the significance of the dietary laws of the Old Testament. This loomed large in the view of 
God's people. They were very significant and important to them. God had made certain meats unclean. And the people that eat those meats are by implication unclean themselves. And Peter, you went into them and you shared their food. And you've incurred, you polluted yourself and this is scandalous and I can't accept this. So why, what's this about? Why, why are they troubled and scandalized by this aspect of what Peter had done? Well, change is hard. That's one way to put it or what, to look at it. Change is hard, especially changes that signal a shift in the balance of power or that's, that challenge our sense of our own significance. Those are hard kinds of changes. And understand that this change has those implications. This is a Jewish movement up to this point. And in a very short amount of time, because of these events and their significance, it becomes an overwhelmingly Gentile movement. Overwhelmingly. And so, whether they understand it or not, there are real implications. There's reason why they should actually be very concerned about their position, their significance, their views, their things that are precious to them, their orientation and outlook. Because God is really making a big shift. And it's not just a shift in theology and practice. It's a shift in ethnicity and demographics. Calvin says, and other commentators say, their problem was prejudice. Their problem was prejudice. Their prejudice. He says, excessive love of their own nation prevented them from acknowledging the work of God. He goes on to explain that the way that they had processed Jesus' announcement of the gospel going to all the nations and the mission going to all the ends of the earth, the way they had processed this and accepted it was great, but they're going to become us. They're going to accept our practices, our ways, our rules, our laws. They're going to accept the law of Moses and everything that we understand about it, the way of life of the Jews. We're going to spread Judaism to the ends of the earth with Jesus as the Messiah to fulfill it. There's a lot of in there that's true, what they didn't understand is the implications that the Holy Spirit was revealing to Peter is that those distinctions between Jew and Gentile are no longer relevant. Circumcision is no longer relevant. Dietary laws and so many ceremonies of the Old Testament have no bearing anymore. There's a real sense where Judaism the heart, it, this flows, this movement, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is a Jewish religion, but it becomes completely Gentile in so many new ways, it's, and by God's design. And we'll have more to say about that as we go through Acts, because there's a lot more to say about it. It is ultimately a judgment on his people that he turns to the Gentiles. Calvin says, equality, equality which was lessening their dignity, 
was intolerable to them. And so they were upset, frustrated, arguing, taking Peter to task, feeling threatened, feeling the implications of this. You know, we've always had a tension in our church of a sort of demographic tension. You remember in the early days of this church, this was sort of more of a, an east side church. There are tensions in our town, right? East side, west side, university, blue collar. And we've had those in our church. We've tried to, to work with it, mediate it, and grow together in appreciation for one another and reflect those things in, in, a, in a good and godly, healthy way, appreciation for one another in this church. What if God did an amazing work on IU's campus this year? And suddenly, you know, there's Eric Rasmussen. He's a former professor of economics at IU in the business school, right? We have some other professors here. Um, What if suddenly 30 of Eric's colleagues believed and came here to seek the Lord (laughs) with their families and their grad students in tow? and the undergrads. Now, that seems exciting, but it would also signal shifts, wouldn't it? I mean, maybe you're not... Just think about it, okay? Think about it. (laughs) We would have to adjust in many ways. What if, uh, here in our youth group, currently, we don't have a lot... We have some public school students in our church, and always have, but we have a lot of uh, parents who have their children in, in private Christian school or in the classical school in Ellisville, and I hear that our, the dynamics of our youth group right now are LCA, Seven Oaks, and some homeschoolers. And they work out those tensions, and you know the, the youth leaders are observing it, and they're trying to figure out how we can get these groups to love each other and bridge, build bridges across these things and divides and be one. But what if suddenly the Lord did an amazing work in our town? And families from Bloomington North and Bloomington South and the middle schools believed and showed up here to seek the Lord among us. How would that affect the dynamics of our youth group youth and the youth leaders? These would be real beautiful things, but real challenges to the status quo, to our sense of ourselves, to our place, you know? What if D. Wayne finally got his wish and 30 black families showed up? <laughs> be beautiful, and it'd be challenging. We'd all have to adjust. It would shift the dynamics of our church. And there would be many things that are uncomfortable and difficult for us in making those adjustments. Change is hard. Especially change that shifts the lay of the land like that. Can God do those things if he wants to? How would we respond to them? These are just some little tastes. It's hard to actually find an analogy that is sufficient to understand the significance of what's happening at this moment in the church's life in Acts 11. (laughs) But what, what Peter meets with back in Jerusalem is, is, a, is a big deal, and it has implications, and people are wrestling to understand and grapple with it.
For a long time, even with these changes, for a long time, the Jerusalem church is going to be honored and have special care shown to it by the Gentiles. It's actually a big aspect of the New Testament and Paul's letters and Paul's ministry. It shows up in a lot of his letters. He's concerned about the, the needs of the saints back in Jerusalem at times when they're in trouble. We see it even in the, at the end of this passage that Paul's involved in bringing gifts from this new Gentile church back to Jerusalem because of their concern for their provision. Jerusalem, the mother church, is going to receive honor and care from these Gentile churches, even though the Gentiles themselves are far going to outpace them and outgrow them and be more significant in the grand scheme of things than them. And it made me realize that, you know, in our little way, in our little circles, Evangel Presbytery, we're something of a mother church in the Presbytery. We've given birth. God has blessed us with the gift of being a part of giving birth to some new works. Indianapolis and Cincinnati and Evansville have been a part of sending people out to plant churches. There's, some, there's, a, there's a kind of, it feels nice to do that, you know? Well, what if God were to bless one or all of them to the point that they outpaced us and outgrew us? And that, again, sounds nice until you pause and think about it. Well, that will change our sense of ourselves. We don't suddenly get to be the, you know, the ones giving birth to all the things and, and calling some of the shots. And, you know, and have, when we speak, people listen. You know, that, some of that goes away. This is just the nature of things. Change is hard. And really what it is, is God blessing anybody else is hard. Because we're by nature jealous for ourselves our own significance, our own desires. So uh, this is sort of, we're talking on the macro, churches and churches, but you could very easily personalize this and see it in your own life. You just think how, how, how difficult it is for you to see God bless somebody, not you. I don't care what you say with your lips. I mean, in your heart of hearts. And that's what's going on with these people. They're not liking what's happening. And they take Peter to task for his involvement in it. Well, Peter gives his defense. It says, by giving in an orderly sequence a straightforward account of the facts. So he puts the facts before them. And I think this is actually a sign of Peter. He doesn't assert his, and he's an apostle. He's Peter, and his brethren are, are taking him to task. He just got home from this amazing experience, completely blessed by the Holy Spirit. He, was, he, was, he got to be a part of it. It's an amazing thing, and he comes home, and he's met with challenges and frustrations and complaints, accusations. Should be lauded as a, as a champion and as, you know, as a leader. Instead, he's got to face these complaints. And instead of asserting his authority and reminding, you know, getting angry at them, he just says, he puts the, well, listen, guys, let me tell you, just tell you what happened, and you can judge for yourselves. And he proceeds to lay it out for them. Now, this is the third telling of this story. 
And we're not going to go through it line by line because we've gone through it twice now in chapter 10. But let me just say a word about repetition in Scripture. Do you guys ever get tired of repetition in Scripture? Do you know that Scripture has a lot of things that it just repeats over and over again? Certain books of the Bible, certain places in those books, there's a lot of repetition. Let me just say a word about it that this helps us see. Repetition is a... Is a a tool used by the authors of Scripture often to point to something that's of unique significance. It's like, notice this. I want to press this home. And we do this when something's important, you make the point twice or three times, you know? That's one use of it. But this is really cool. In this Acts, as Luke as an author, through the book of Acts, has a long story to tell. And he's been going pretty quickly through a lot of years of history. Tell him, give him the highlights. And he's and moving pretty fast pace up to this point. And suddenly, through simple repetition of the story three times over, he slows it down. So the pace of the narrative just goes, woo, just like it does in the movies. At, you know, in the basketball game, when the critical shot is fired away and everything goes, woo, and the ball goes through the air, and you think, is it going to go through? And it goes through, and suddenly it you know, erupts back into fast motion again, a regular speed. This is like a literary technique that Luke is using to slow it down. What the, what the movie maker is saying to you is that shot is the key. This is the highlight. This is the great moment. And that's what Luke is doing through this device of repeating the story. One of the things he's doing is slowing it down so we understand and feel the significance of what's happening here as the door is flung wide open to the Gentiles. I do want to draw your attention to one aspect of Peter's third telling, or this third telling of the story, and that's the way it ends. The way it ends is a little different than the other tellings. Peter gets up to the point of the story where he's saying, and then I was preaching, I spoke to them, um, and then he says, as I, even as I was starting to speak, I, the Holy Spirit was poured out, that happened, we've heard about that before, but then suddenly he introduces a couple of new things here at the, to conclude. They're not things that are happening in the room, they're things that are happening in his head as he's standing there observing it and being a part of it, and this is his way of bringing people in and and assuring them that, you know, I too had some concerns. I too was grappling with what this meant. And here's some things that God said to me and became clear to me in that moment, and it helped me. I think that's what he's doing. So the first one is, he says, the first thing is something he remembered. He's standing there observing the Holy Spirit poured out, and he says, I remembered. What verse is that? Okay, verse 16, he says, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I remember that. And I think Jesus was preparing us for this moment. And it became clear to me that this is the Lord Jesus is doing. He knew this was coming. He's doing this now. I remembered that. And the second thing he says is, as he's observing this, he thinks to himself, before he speaks it out loud, he thinks to himself, 
Who am I that I should stand in God's way? If this is what Jesus is doing, who am I to stand in his way? I'm his servant. Now, in the previous accounts, he just says out loud, who can refuse water to these people who God has blessed in this way? But here we have his pre-thought, interior thought. Who am I to stand in God's way? Now, I think this is Peter working with the, the people who are complaining with him and trying to you know, get them to empathize with him and understand that he too struggled and was trying to figure it out. But it, and so it's very humbly, meekly put, but it's also really quite challenging for them because the implication is, of course, are you going to stand in God's way? This is what God is doing, beginning to end. Are, are you going to stand in God's way? So what happened? How did they respond? Well, when they heard this, they quieted down, it says in verse 18. And you can get people to quiet down by saying something that, you know, they can't answer. But that doesn't mean that they have a change of heart or accept or, you know, get on, really on board. He who, how, how does that saying go? He's who is unconvinced against his will remains unconvinced still. That's it. Were they convinced against their will? Doesn't seem to, actually. It seems like they accept it. Because it says, um, not only did they keep quiet, but they gave glory to God. How did they give glory to God? They glorified God, verse 18, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance which leads to life. Now, Scripture gives us a number of really beautiful descriptions for everything. You know, like little summary, summaries of it all. Salvation. That's a summary of a lot of things. Beautiful ways of other phrases that help us understand and appreciate from a different angle. Salvation. All it entails. Here's one of those beautiful phrases that teaches us something unique about the nature of God's dealings with us in grace. They say, the gift that these people have received, they sum up this way. They've been given the repentance that leads to life. Now, what is repentance? It involves sorrow over sin, but not a sorrow that is just like, man, I feel the weight of my guilt. I feel... I don't, I'm afraid of the consequences. That is not repentance. I feel embarrassed by how my sin makes me look. That is not repentance. Repentance is, I see my guilt before God. And I see that it offends him, that it is a sin against him. And I see how serious, weighty, and awful that is because I see the majesty and the holiness and the glory of God offended. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. In order to turn away from something, repentance involves turning away from something to something else. You have to first see what it is and see how awful it is and feel it. And repentance involves that. 
And it sees how what, what is awful about it is just as David said in the psalm, against thee, o- thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So not about consequences. It's not about embarrassment before men. It's about a holy God who sees everything. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Has God given you that gift? That's the gift that they recognize has been poured out upon these Gentiles. That's how they sum up everything. It's not on our lingo and not normally how we think about salvation, but this is a gift from God. You don't work that up in yourself. It's a gift of God. Is it a gift that you've been given? It's the greatest gift that you can receive from the Lord. And it's the gift that keeps on giving. Jesus calls us to a life of repentance. It's not a once thing. I, oh, I came under conviction. I prayed a prayer. I'm a Christian. I'm set. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of repentance, of continually humbling ourselves, com- confessing our sins, daily depending on God's grace and mercy, doing the hard work of putting off the deeds of the flesh and the old man and putting on the new man in Christ Jesus. Coming to God continually for washing and cleansing. Do you get weary of that gift? It's hard, actually. It's hard to live that life daily over and over again, coming to the Lord, confessing your sin, humbling yourself over and over again. Anybody want to agree with me that that can get hard or be tiring and difficult? Okay. It's not just repentance. The gift is two parts. It's a repentance that leads to life. So remember that. When you get weary of the work of repentance and the work of mortifying the flesh, hold out before you the promise that it leads to life. This is the path to eternal glory and joy. Our momentary light afflictions and the difficult work of sanctification and the trials that God uses to improve us and to make us holy and to you know, pound us into some conformity to his will. Momentary light afflictions that are not worthy to be compared with the life and the glory that awaits us. It's a repentance that leads to life. That's the gift that they saw and acknowledged had been given to Cornelius and his household. This is the gift that we need in our households in our own lives. Oh God, give it to each one here. In the second section of the passage, we move on to what starts to happen as this door has been flung open and some people, not immediately, but cautiously, some people start to tiptoe through the threshold (laughs) and see what's on the other side. And they immediately are met with some really amazing successes in a Gentile territory. And it gets the attention of the Jews back in Jerusalem, and they send an emissary and Barnabas, and 
It's an amazing thing. So it starts by saying that some dispersed Jews who fled the persecution in Jerusalem that began with the martyrdom of Stephen. So this takes us back. Do you remember that there was, uh, upon the death of Stephen, the deacon, who was stoned to death for his faith in Jesus and for his challenging the, the religious leaders. And he was killed for that, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that day began a great persecution against the church. And that was what, how God first used, that's the first thing he used to drive his people out, to disperse them throughout Judea and, um, the, the, and Samaria and start to spread this news of the kingdom wherever they went. So they left Jerusalem because they needed to flee the heat and the fires of persecution, and they, but they continued to minister wherever they were. And so this is where we're at in the book. They're, they're, they're going around these territories spreading the word of God. Some of them, it says, make it all the way up north to Antioch and Cyprus and where else? Phoenicia. Now, Stephen Baker, Pastor Baker, says I needed to use some maps. You want a map? Okay. Let me get the laser pointer. We got laser pointers and maps. Okay. That, oh no. I had a laser pointer. Now it's dead. Okay. Do you see Judea and Samaria? Jerusalem sort of in the, hey, thank you. Whoever that is. See Cyprus, that island in the Mediterranean? There you go. See Antioch, northern Syria? Between, now south of, of Syria, in that, along the coast there, just north of Samaria, is Phoenicia. Down a little bit. Right in there. That's Phoenicia. Tyre and Sidon from the Old Testament. You've heard about those cities. Those are the primary cities of ancient Phoenicia. Thank you. Sweet. Thank you, Andrew. Yes. Oh, was that you from the back? Oh. So just to give you ori- oriented, that's, leave it up there for a second. So that some of the, so they, they go that far in their wanderings and preaching the gospel. But it says they're only speaking to the Jews very clearly. And it says it in such a way as it makes it sound like they're actually afraid to talk to the Gentiles. They're not knowing how they're going to respond to this message or what they're going to think about it. They don't want any more trouble. But they are trying to win their countrymen over to their faith. But then some men, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, which I think is down here in northern Africa, and Antioch, they go to Antioch and they start to speak to the Greeks. They start to experiment, explore with what does this message mean? How does it play? How does it communicate and translate to the Gentile world, which is basically this time a Greek world? And so they try that. You can can take it down for a second. What was the result of this experiment? Verse 21, a large number believed and turned to the Lord. Is that because their evangelism was just awesome, just top-notch? These guys were the best. They'd been to the pastor's college. They knew theology. They knew the scriptures. They knew apologetics. These guys were the best. No. Why? It says why they had success. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. So as we go through the book of Acts and we're learning 
We're compiling things that we need to understand and know and ask for about evangelism. One of them's faith to do it. Another one is God's blessing upon our efforts. Unless the Lord builds the house, the workmen labor in vain. So they give it a try. God blesses it. And many Greeks believe. Now, word of this reaches Jerusalem. They don't know. They don't have a guy on the ground. They don't know these evangelists. And just like when the, when the gospel was received in Samaria, they send somebody from Jerusalem, Peter at that time, to oops, check it out and to add his blessing and confirmation to the work. They send somebody again. Maybe they send Barnabas because there's no apostles on site at the time. We don't know. But Barnabas is the one chosen, and, and that's a really good choice. The more I learn about Barnabas, the more I like this man. He's a beautiful man. His original name was Joseph, as his given name. The church takes to calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He is a son of encouragement. Encouragement is what he brings to the, to the equation um, when, he, when he arrives there. He starts to encourage them, it says. We've seen his believing generous spirit before when Paul came to Jerusalem and was looked at suspiciously by the believers there. Paul wanted to, he kept trying to associate with them, but he had been the archenemy of the church just a few years before, and they didn't trust him. And Barnabas spent his capital, and it drug, he dragged Paul along to the apostles and said, listen, I, I believe this guy. I trust this guy. Here's the facts about him. And he brought him in. He, he's the kind of guy that does that work. Beautiful man. He was a big giver to the church in Acts 4. We read about how he sold a tract of land and brought a big gift and laid it at the apostles' feet. He's, he's described here in verse 24 as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now that sounds like somebody we should want to be like. I don't know why anybody hasn't named their son Barnabas yet. We don't have any Barneys here, do we? Jenna, did we try that out? Or did I try to convince you about Barnabas once? I think I did. It probably has something to do with Barney being, but shut it down. It failed for lack of a second. What did Barnabas do when he got up there? It says in verse 23, he rejoiced. Why did he rejoice? This was a true work of the Spirit of God. It was a true sign of God's grace. And he got to witness it. And he added... He had nothing to correct. <laughs> it was just God working in a marvelous way. He just got to participate, and he started encouraging, using his gift and encouraging them. And how did he encourage them? Well, I've lost my place. He began to encourage them, verse 23. Encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. You believe, now stand firm in your faith. Hold fast to your confession without wavering. Stay true to the Lord. You can do it. God is good. Don't lose heart. He's an encourager. Do you encourage your brothers and sisters? Don't under, undervalue 
in the equation of this church, the work of the ministry, the gift of encouragement. It is not enough in your garden merely to weed. You have to feed. You have to fertilize. You have to add to the soil. And that's what Barnabas clearly does when he comes, is he just pours out encouragement on this work. And it prospers all the more. After the statements about Barnabas, it says considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So he, he adds, and he participates in this work. And he's the big guy from Jerusalem. He could probably, he's probably the top dog on the scene at this point. He could easily have just left it there, you know, sat on top of the big pile of, what, of God's blessing and had a nice experience and a nice life. Built a name for himself. Built a kingdom for Barnabas. Cushy place. But what is his, where is his mind? This is another amazing thing to me about this man. As he's thinking, this is a great work. It needs a great man. I know the man. I've met him before. Where did we leave him? Where did we send him? Tarsus. Paul is the man for this. He's got the gifts that we need to further this work, to take it even farther than where where we are now. I'm going to go look for him. So put that other map up, please. Here's Antioch. This is where they are. Barnabas has come up there from Jerusalem. Paul, this is, these arrows are about the life of Paul. Paul, as a young man, started off, he was born in Tarsus. And as a young man, he came down to Jerusalem to study uh, religious law with Gamaliel, a famous teacher of the law. He aspired to be a great teacher of the law himself, probably, and a Pharisee. He became a zealous persecutor of the church, and he went... Uh, with letters from the chief priests to Damascus to capture believers in Jesus and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Right there outside of the city, he meets the Lord and he's converted. And he spends three years here in Damascus and doing a little bit of a stint in Arabia. Arabia is all this area down around here. We don't know a lot of details about that, but he went for some time to Arabia, probably on some kind of evangelistic mission. All of that wound, got him in trouble, and he had to be lowered down. There was a plot to kill him, and he had to be lowered down in a basket by his friends and escaped there. He went to Jerusalem. Barnabas brought him in, helped him uh, be trusted by the apostles and the disciples there. He got into trouble in Jerusalem because of his teaching, and they, people wanted to kill him. So the disciples took him out here to Caesarea, put him on a ship, and sent him back to Tarsus. And that's where he was when this was happening and when um, Barnabas thought, we need Paul. Let's go find him. So he goes to, to, to Tarsus and he finds Paul. Paul's been there, we don't know exactly for how long, somewhere between a year and four years. We don't know a lot of the details of what's going on here. Some people think he was busy getting disinherited for his faith in Jesus by his family. He says in Philippians I have suffered the loss of all things that I may win Christ. And you can imagine how a family with reputation and history in Judaism would reject him 
for his faith. We don't know for sure, though. Anyway, that's where he was. And Barnabas brings him back to Antioch. And they minister together for a year. And they teach the church. And they, they help establish a church there. Give it shape and form. And this is where Christians are first, or people, the disciples are first called Christians. Let's, we'll end here. We'll pick up with the last little section next week, Lord willing. We'll just end here. A few thoughts about the name Christian. This is probably not a name that they gave themselves. Because it doesn't show up enough in the Bible to, do, to indicate that the believers themselves thought that name was like essential at the time. Not a name that Jesus gave them. So it just shows up a couple of times. And, it, and usually in the context of, them to, of, of someone talking to them about persecution. So Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian... If you suffer because of that name that people have called you, <laughs> rejoice. It's okay. <laughs> That's a good thing, says Peter to the saints. So it's not a name they gave themselves. It's almost certainly not a name that the Jews would have called them Christian because Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, and they would never have wanted to grant them any connection to the Messiah, the Christians. They claim Jesus was the Messiah, but no, we're not going to label them little Messiah, people of the Messiah. So this is probably something that the Greeks in Antioch ascribed to them as they're starting to realize, okay, so this is not just a little sect of Judaism. It's getting traction with Gentiles. And this is something we've not seen before. This is something new. This is a new movement. What is it? Who, who is it centered around? What, what are the, who are they talking about? This guy named Christ. Okay, well, we'll call them Christians. I think this is probably how it came about. We'll call them Christians, which is to say little anointed one or Christ's people. These are Christ's people, people of Christ. It became a badge of honor, something the Christians wore with eventually and, or increasingly with some pride. Well, it was probably something of a disreputable name, like a, a, making, a way of making fun of them. Do you call yourself a Christian? Well, that's where it comes from. And it means Christ's people, Christ's person, or little anointed one. And it clearly connects you with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some young people were just baptized today into faith in Jesus Christ, into membership in the church. And they received the name, outwardly, Christian. Whose reputation is on the line with your way of life, with your words, with your witness, the Lord Jesus Christ? You're, you and him, you bear his name. Do you remember how the commandments say not to take the name of the Lord in vain? And you know how we normally think of that as not having a potty mouth, not cursing, not saying bad words. Well, that's an application of it. But a, a better one, a more significant one is this. We have an obligation to uphold the honor 
the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We bear his name. And forever, because of that, his reputation is bound up with yours. Young people, teenagers, youth group, you listening? His reputation is bound up with yours. With your godliness or ungodliness, with your faithfulness or unfaithfulness, with your love or hatred, with your whatever. Bear his name faithfully and not in vain. He takes his name seriously. We'll come back to this next week because the remainder really does bring us back to Jerusalem. And chapter 12 is set in Jerusalem and it's the last sort of episode, big episode in the ministry and the life of the Apostle Peter. And then we move on from there to Paul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you very much for your word. And I pray that you would cause it to take good root in our hearts and to grow and flourish into increased faith and increased obedience in our lives. Help us, Father, to bear the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with integrity, with faithfulness, to take his name seriously and to act accordingly, according to his own character, as if we were his servants, which we are, as if we had work to do to uphold his honor and glory in this world, which we do. I pray that we would not be fleshly-minded, fleshly-acting, but would show us ourselves to be true children of God, born of your Spirit, bearing that fruit for your glory where you've put us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.